0: This is a crowd podcast.
1: Once the government gives somebody immunity, they've already opened the door for me to call them a liar.
2: That's one of Frank Witterich's lawyers, Major Haytham Farage. Why do
1: I need to give you immunity unless you've done something bad? what's the immunity for? I mean, if you're just a witness, you know, when when Mike Epstein sees something and goes to reporter, he doesn't need immunity to talk about it. Why do I need to give you immunity? I give you immunity because you've got something to hide. And I just got to peel the onion enough to understand exactly what's going on in there and to try and monetize it for the jury to show what the value of that immunity is. Because if Haytham Farage goes and gives money to a witness and say, testify for me this way, I'd be prosecuted for uh, obstruction of justice and you name it. But when the government goes and does it, not with money, but in, call it immunity, which is more valuable than money because it's liberty, we don't we don't think anything of it. And, and that's the first step to unraveling the government's case.
2: This investigation is convened by Lieutenant General James T. Mattis, commanding officer, First Marine Expeditionary Force,
1: by his appointing order dated 23 May of 2007. The case of Staff Sergeant Frank D. Woodridge, the United States Marine Corps, the accused. May I call your first witness? Mr. could you go please stand
3: front of stand? Turn face me and raise your right hand.
2: On the morning of 19 November, 2005, Humberto Mendoza was a private first class in the United States Marine Corps. He was 21 years old and had never seen combat. Mendoza was part of the four-man fire team that assaulted houses one and two. And for a time, he was the prosecution's key witness in the case against Frank Wooderich, and the very first Marine to be granted immunity.
1: You're testifying today that he opened the door and then you shot him? Yes, sir. Okay, did you see him when he opened the door?
4: Uh, didn't see exactly his whole face, sir, but I know it was a male right
1: there, sir. Okay. Did you see his hands? Yes, sir. He wasn't armed? No, sir. Were you shot anyway?
2: Yes, sir. My name is Michael Epstein, and you're listening to my podcast about the longest, most expensive criminal investigation in U.S. military history, Murder in House 2, Episode 5, Women and Children.
0: Uh, for the record, sir, Mr. Michael Epstein from the
2: sorry. Do you have any objection to this individual uh, videoing this demonstration? I just
3: don't understand. Is he part of an attorney? It doesn't matter. He's filming this right he's now. He's just an individual.
2: In there were any number of moments on this journey when I thought to myself, I can't believe I'm filming this. I can't believe someone is letting me bring my camera into this room and allowing me to film what's taking place. There was a moment which you'll hear in a few episodes, when Neil, Haytham, and Colby all confront Frank about his lack of memory. And another deeply private moment between Frank and his wife Marisol that genuinely gave me pause.
3: All right, well, no, all right. I, I guess it doesn't matter then. It doesn't matter that we don't have to, I got Oh, so, no objection. I'll find it. We'll, we'll get it
2: clarified later. And then there was this moment, at a pretrial hearing in a courtroom in Camp Pendleton, California.
3: My only concern was if it's a potential witness that you know, if there are further proceedings in these matters, is there going to be? That's that's why I asked the question.
2: I'm not trying to be be a witness for you, Mr. Parker.
0: No, sir. Don't anticipate being a witness.
2: To my knowledge, no one before or since has ever filmed in a military courtroom. Cameras simply are not allowed. And yet here I was, camera in hand, filming testimony that would turn out to be crucial to understanding what happened in house two.
1: Okay, this hearing is called the order. And I just want to clarify on the record, the
2: stenographer Corporal, will continue to take steno. We have a uh, Mr. Epstein who's going to videotape this demonstration so it'll be clear on the record when someone reads the transcript. The tape will be turned over directly to the government and will mark that as an exhibit and there'll be no additional copies made until 32 copies are made for all the exhibits. Any objection by counsel to that procedure? No, yes, sir.
1: If I uh, continue. Okay, uh, let's go, I want you to take the position that you took on that day. Go ahead and replicate that. Yes,
2: sir. As we've already discussed in previous episodes, there was very little physical evidence in the Marine Corps case against Frank Wooderich. There was Mike Maloney's blood spatter analysis and the photographs taken by Andrew Wright, but that was about it. Instead, the government was forced to rely on the testimony of the Marines themselves. But like with the police, it's very hard to get one Marine to testify against another. And it's not just the cone of silence. No one wants to be a snitch. There's also the question of whether or not someone's testimony might implicate them in the crime. And so sometimes prosecutors make a trade. Immunity from prosecution in exchange for testimony, which is exactly what happened with Umberto Mendoza.
0: Our assumption in the very beginning was that because PFC Mendoza was was the lowest rank Marine who was there that day, brand new, brand new right out of boot camp, that he was not being held responsible for anything because there were Marines senior to him on the scene.
2: This is Frank's lead civilian lawyer, Neil
0: Puckett we questioned him not being charged but we understood that perhaps uh, the investigation which hadn't been released to us yet had shown him to be not responsible or or having been ordered to do something so you didn't have any discovery you didn't know what you were up against no no we didn't we didn't have any discovery at that point
2: the government's case against frank wooderich centered on a single statement frank made at the very beginning of the investigation Remember the internal investigations triggered by Time Magazine's reporting? Well, one of them was called the Watt Report, creatively named after the Army colonel who authored it. The Watt Report contains no forensics or any physical evidence because it was written before Mike Maloney and Tom Brady traveled to Iraq, before the NCIS recovered Andrew Wright's photographs, before the investigation really got underway. Instead, Colonel Watt drew his conclusions from sworn statements made by every Marine involved in the action that day, including Frank Wutterich. Frank's statement was not very long, only five paragraphs to be exact, but buried in it was an admission that would haunt Frank for years. Frank told Colonel Watt that after the IED blast, his squad came under small arms fire from a house just across a steep ravine. That house would later be identified as House One. Frank was put in charge of a four man fire team and ordered to clear south. Here's what he said happened when the Marines got to House One Lance Corporal Tatum, PFC Mendoza, and Corporal Salinas were with me. It was a four man stack on the wall of the house. I told them to treat it as a hostile environment. I told them to shoot first and ask questions later. I told them to shoot first and ask questions later. In other words, don't determine whether the target is civilian or an insurgent. Just shoot whomever you see. Frank, of course, argued that's not what he meant. He just wanted his Marines to know they were entering what he believed to be a hostile environment. He thought the enemy was in that home, an enemy who had just fired at them. He didn't want his Marines to hesitate because hesitation could get them killed. But that's not how the Marine Corps chose to interpret Frank's statement. They said that by uttering those words, shoot first and ask questions later, Frank Woodrich had in effect ordered his Marines to kill everyone indiscriminately. The
3: testimony about the, the case hearing, shall be the truth, but all truth and nothing about the truth, so could you explain to the investigating officer what you
2: saw? Which takes us to Umberto Mendoza's testimony about what happened when the Marines got to House Two.
3: First of all, well, the Marines are in the positions you described upon your first arrival. Do you hear any noise coming from within the internal structure of House Two?
2: No, when Frank and his Marines were clearing House One, someone thought they saw an insurgent running behind the house. They yelled, Runner, and the fire team rushed out of the home. But once outside, there was nobody there. Nevertheless, the Marines ran in the direction they thought the runner had gone and eventually arrived at House 2.
3: What are you doing in your position at M-1? I was the handy, sir. Okay. Now, uh, do you hear either Sergeant Woodridge or Corporal Linus make any verbal comments? Do you hear them speaking at all? Yes, sir. One, Stefan Woodridge tells me He says, just wait until he opens the door and shoot. Okay. How do you know it was Sergeant Wooders that made this comment to you? Because I can hear his voice What exactly did he say? He says, just wait until he opens
2: the door and shoot. Just wait until he opens the door and shoot. Damning. And in fact, Mendoza's testimony corresponds pretty closely with Frank's own memory of their approach to House 2. Remember that scene in Neil's apartment when Haytham tries to jog Frank's memory? Let me play it for you again. What, what are
1: you thinking as you approach house number two at this point?
3: That we're gonna we need to go in here and clear this house because that's where the
1: insurgents went to. Mendoza's in front of you. Is that right? That's correct. Say what you said. I, I wanna hear it. I wanna hear exactly what you said. Okay.
3: Same thing as the first house.
1: What's the next thing you hear? Um keep
2: your eyes closed. I know this I, hear,
3: little... I hear a gunshot towards the house.
2: Same thing as the first house, which according to Frank, was shoot first and ask questions later. Not that far off from, just wait until he opens the door and shoot.
3: We're heading south, progressing on foot. En route to house two, time of entry 1548.
2: Now, I want to play you one more piece of audio. Again, it's audio you've already heard. Special agents Maloney and Brady as they enter House Two during their site visit.
0: Entering,
3: it's a appears to be a two-story structure that is uh, stucco, mortar, stone uh, construction. One, two, three, possibly four. Five, six, seven, possibly seven gunshots uh, in the kitchen door.
2: And finally, back to Mendoza on the witness stand.
3: If you try and explain to the best of your ability exactly what you see at that uh, kitchen doorway. Was uh Adult male sir. What did you do? Mm-hmm. It was open? The mail went down. So you fired your weapon? Sir. How many rounds did you fire? Oh, six,
2: seven rounds, sir. Those seven gunshots Maloney counted in the kitchen door were fired by Umberto Mendoza. And the unarmed Iraqi male who opened the door, who Mendoza killed, was the father of that home, 44-year-old Eunice Salim Rasif. Mendoza was never charged with Rasif's death. No one was. An unarmed Iraqi male, displaying neither hostile act nor hostile intent, was shot seven times as he answered the door to his own home, and the U.S. government did not consider it a crime. Had they, they would have charged someone, anyone, with his murder. But they didn't. The Marines then rushed into House 2. Did you see where Sergeant Woodridge went once he entered
3: the home? They were inside the House, sir. I didn't know where they went,
2: I'm going to summarize some of Mendoza's testimony for you and try to simplify it because it can get pretty convoluted and it is really hard to hear. Mendoza claimed that after the Marines entered House 2, Stephen Tatum and Frank Witterich threw a fragmentary grenade into a washroom just off the kitchen. That washroom turned out to be empty. No one was inside it. Then someone, maybe Frank, maybe Tatum, yelled, frag out meaning a live grenade had just been thrown. Tatum, Salinas, and Frank all exited the house, but Mendoza couldn't get out in time, and he took cover behind a freezer in the kitchen. Then the grenade exploded, and the Marines rushed back into the house.
3: Who did you physically observe that uh, re enter the home? the same three Marines that were before there. Okay, so so if I understand your testimony, the Marines re-entered the room through the kitchen door as you've already described. Oh, wait sir. And did they continue to move in? Yes,
2: sir. Mendoza testified that after the Marines went back into House 2, he hid in the kitchen, taking up a security position. After four, maybe five minutes, he got worried and went looking for the rest of the Marines, only to find Lance Corporal Tatum standing alone just a few feet away.
3: You actually were able to physically see last Tatum? Yes, sir. He was just standing there as
2: went down. I believe he was just scanning the area. According to Mendoza, he walked past Tatum and opened a closed door at the end of the hallway.
3: What did you do when you saw that that door was closed? I just went inside
4: to see, I just want to just check it out and see what's exactly there. Why? Because usually when the door is closed, that means that room will not have been there
3: yet. Did you walk, did you physically walk past Lance Corporal to go to the door that's indicated as door 3? Yes, sir. When you walked by him, did you say anything to him? No, sir. Did you say anything to him? No, yes, sir. Did you ask him, hey, what's in that room? Yes, sir. Um, was he acting nervous or anxious or anything? No, yes, sir. Nothing. Was he checking any other rooms at this time? No, yes, sir. I just- uh, Alright, so did you actually enter that room? Yes, sir. Could you describe the investigating officer what you saw when you entered that room? When I
4: opened the door, the first thing I see is women and kids uh, laying down the bed and there uh, were no kid
3: that uh, on the other side of the bed. First of all, uh, did you physically enter into the room? Yes, sir. you said you saw women, did you see, first of all, any like adult women? Yes, sir. Where did you, how many adult women did you personally observe? To adult women, sir. Okay. Now, did you see children? Yes, sir. Where were the children? Did you we able to observe where they were located? They were on top of the bed, next to the adult room. All right. And how long did you? you know, when you entered the room, how long did you actually personally observe um, the individuals that you just described for <coughs> the investigation? How long yes. were you in there actually looking? at Seconds, Just a few seconds. Just a few seconds. Just enough to know who wasn't there, and nobody there was presenting a threat. Sir. Okay. Um, did the children look at you, yes,
2: sir? Mendoza's testimony stunned me. Here was a witness who put himself in the bedroom with the women and children before they were killed, who said they could ID him who claimed that after four or five minutes of dynamic house clearing, no one had opened the door to the bedroom. There were only four doors in the whole house, but even that wasn't the craziest part of Mendoza's testimony.
1: This is the story of Whitney Houston, of George Michael, of Otis Redding, of Amy Winehouse, of Michael Hutchins, Bob Marley, This is the story of Prince.
0: It's a new podcast series.
1: About how they died. And why we're still talking about them so long after.
0: It's like nothing you've ever heard before.
1: That feeling.
0: That feeling. Just search for Death of a Rockstar on your podcast app.
2: And subscribe now. This is Michael. And I don't know about you, but sometimes life gets so busy, I don't have the time to cook. But I still want delicious, healthy, gourmet meals. Enter... Factor. Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals are always fresh and never frozen. Each meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready-to-eat in just two minutes. I eat the flexitarian and protein-rich meals, and with a weekly menu of 35 options, there's plenty for me to choose from. Last night, I had the Moroccan-style almond-crusted salmon, and it was quick and amazing. And if you want more than meals, there are over 60 add-ons, like breakfast, on-the-go lunch, snacks, and smoothies to help you stay fueled and feel good all day. And if you're like me, and you're always looking for gourmet options, you can try meals that feature premium ingredients, like filet mignon, shrimp, truffle butter, broccolini, and asparagus. Customize your weekly meals with the flexibility to get as much or as little as you need. You can always pause or reschedule deliveries to suit your lifestyle, factor, is your solution for fast, premium meals without the need for cooking. So what are you waiting for? Head to factormeals.com murderhouse50 and use code MURDERHOUSE50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box. That's murderhouse50 at factormeals.com murderhouse50 to get 50% off your first box, plus 20% off your next box, while your subscription is active. 3 a.m. the comedy horror podcast that holds weekly gatherings around the campfire. Let me tell you what you're going to get. You're going to hear stories about demonic possessions, prison stabbings, skinwalkers, glitches in the matrix, cult leaders, missing 411, night marchers, Operation Paperclip, mesopotamian devil worship and so many monsters it'll give kanye west a runaway for his money pop and meme culture also aren't off topic a camp where laughs and scares are constantly competing for first place we're just a group of friends trying to bust each other's balls find the best stories and expand the circle in the process 3am the comedy horror podcast not for the faint or fragile of heart let's go For years, Humberto Mendoza was the key government witness in the case against Frank Wooderich. Mendoza was never charged with a crime, even though he admitted to shooting two unarmed civilians that day. Instead, he was the first Marine to be granted immunity and eventually called to testify about what happened in House 2.
4: Okay. In the moment, I had uh, three points lean. Okay. So pretty much they weapon was all the time down. I open, and by then, I had the weapon just kind of like hanging, just with a three-point sling, and I don't think I just see just women and kids again, and close the doors there.
1: Okay. Mendoza testified that he opened the door, and that he saw that there were women and children.
2: This is Haytham Farage, one of Frank's lawyers. When he placed himself
1: in the room, I, I took that at face value. I had to work with that, because there's no reason for him to place himself in the room. Just so we're clear, last bit Mendoza, remember this this diagram of house number two? And I'm talking about this back bedroom. Is yes, sir. Okay, and the door opens in. You see that? The door opens in this way. All right, sir.
2: Okay. Frank's legal team thought that there were huge, massive leaps of logic in Mendoza's testimony. Ones that were so unbelievable, they struck at the heart of Mendoza's credibility. So Haytham did something really unusual. He built a doorframe, with a door, and brought it into the courtroom. Then he had Mendoza demonstrate for the investigating officer exactly what he did in House 2. Last
0: well, Court cool. Mendoza was going to take the stand,
2: but Major
0: Farage had the idea to uh, build uh, a doorway, actually constructed out of two-by-fours. Neil Puckett. And get a hold of a uh, a mock a weapon, a, a, something that looked like an M4 carbine, and so that so that he could uh, Mendoza could use it. And he and he he walked him through his his version of events. And I'm talking about it from the stand. And then he said, "Okay, here we're going to set this up. Here's your weapon. How did how did you how did you approach
2: that room? Tell us how you did this." show me what you did. <laughs> this was the courtroom demonstration I was allowed to film. Go ahead. So
1: what I wanted to do is show the absolute inconsistency of his conduct when you compare it to Marine Corps doctrine. Okay, open it and wait inside. Go ahead and do what you did, wait about the time that you did, and then do what you did when you left. Okay, just take me through that. Okay, sir. I was you there,
4: open the door, look exactly what wasn't there, and get outside.
1: Okay. And I assume you had a rifle? Yes, sir. Please do it with the rifle. Uh, in the and moment. then back up and, and do the same thing okay. that you did, just like you would've walked down the hallway.
4: Okay, in the moment I had that three-point sling. Okay. So, pretty much the weapon was all the time down, I open, and I then just, what I had the weapon just kind of like hanging just with a three-point sling, and the only thing I just see is just open and kids again, and close doors there. Okay.
2: He says guns at sling. What does that mean? Now I don't have to
1: hold the rifle in my hand the entire time. I can literally have it hang, relax, you know, rest my shoulders, rest my arms, but if I'm doing house clearing, I'm at the ready. I can do my work, and if I need to, I can quickly bring it to the ready. So when Mendoza says he opens the door at three points sling, That makes no sense because he needs to be at the ready at this point. I mean, there is no way that they went in into this house without, without uh, e- either what's called in the Marine or the low ready which means the rifle's up here, but the, the, the bore is pointed down, or the high ready. And usually it's the high ready when you're clearing a room. To have it outside your hands means you can't respond within a second or two, which means it's, it's enough for, for the guy to take your head off. When you say the weapon was hanging, that means you weren't ready to fire. No, sir. And that's your testimony. Yes, sir. Thank you very much. I'll take that rifle right now. To open the door, And look inside into a room that had not been cleared in a house where they thought they were taking fire and where they just threw a grenade just in another room was completely uh uh, incredible why Uh, because that would have showed that he's lying you didn't have to go in shooting i'm not saying you have to go in guns blazing but there is no way you're going in with your with your gun down not ready to fire
2: now before you come to any of your own conclusions, I want you to listen to the rest of Mendoza's testimony. This time, under direct examination by the government.
3: Okay, um, did the children look at you? Yes, sir. How, how did they appear? What, did, did you describe their demeanor? Uh, I believe the voice. Go sir. Now, I believe you testified that you closed the door? Yes, sir. What did you do after you closed the door? I turned around and to Lance what do you say to Lance Corporal Taylor I uh, told him to one uh, of those women's and kids. Did Lance Corporal Taylor say anything in response to that? Yes sir. He says, well, should they? Okay. And what did you say in response to that? I said they're just women's and kids.
0: Mendoza for the first time that we had heard said, yeah, well, we were in house two, we were in the hallway. Neil Puckett. I looked in the back bedroom and all and all that was in there was women's and kids. And so Tatum walked up to me and said, well, wh- wh- who's in there? And he says, oh, it- it's okay, no problem, it's just women's and kids. And Tatum said, well, well, then go in and shoot them. And Mendoza refused to do that, so Tatum motioned him out of the way, according to Mendoza, and then went in and began shooting. So now for the first time, there's the danger to the Tatum team that Mendoza is going to testify in Tatum's trial, or, or in any trial, and say, I told Tatum, that there were only women and children in there, and he told me to to get out of here. And then I saw him go in and kill all those kill all those people. He has him acting with malice aforethought and executing women and children.
2: Right. And he, it's not a combat. No, it's definitely not combat action, according to Mendoza. Listening to Mendoza's testimony was, I don't know, incredible. Like, I couldn't believe he was actually a government witness. Because remember, Stephen Tatum placed Frank as the primary shooter in the back bedroom. Tatum said the only reason he went into that room firing his weapon was because another Marine was already in there, and that that Marine was Frank Wutterich. Remember that? Well, none of it is in Mendoza's testimony. According to Mendoza, he opened the door, peeked his head in, saw only women and children, and then close the door. Where the hell is Frank Wooderich? According to Mendoza, nowhere. Frank's not in the room. Frank didn't shoot the kids. Tatum did. What the hell is going on? Tatum is
0: saying that he went in and fired only because Wooderich was already in there firing. That's the alligator closest to our boat. Then Mendoza contradicts Tatum in such an unreasonable way as to not be believable that Tatum was the one, the only one, who went in there and fired. And we know that can't be true because we know there had to be two shooters. We've got these horrible pictures that we know cannot have been the product of reasonable rules of engagement. Because even if you go in with great fear and trepidation and believe that the room is filled with insurgents, after you pull the trigger a couple of times, at some point you realize it's not insurgents. It's no kidding, women and children huddled together on a bed. There's no real apparent threat there. And at some point, you need to stop pulling the trigger. And they're all bullets to the head. And they, and all of them have headshots. All of them have headshots. Now, it's not that they're at such a great distance. They're all within a few feet of the, of the muzzle of a rifle. But those were, to put it in the investigator's words, well-aimed shots aimed at the head. Execution. Executions. I mean, that's how I would paint it as a prosecutor.
2: These are executions. So who do you believe? Tatum? Mendoza? Both? Neither? And what about the government? What story did the prosecutors believe? Did they even know what story they were telling? Now I've told you this whole convoluted mess, because when we get to the end of this series, you're going to have to decide for yourself whether the government intended all along to cover up the truth about Haditha, or whether their failure to secure a single conviction in this case was instead the product of incompetence. In other words, did prosecutors grant Mendoza immunity before they had all the evidence, before they knew his testimony? Did they sell their superiors on the idea that with PFC Mendoza on their team, they could convict Frank Wooderich, only to find out later that Mendoza's testimony undermined their entire case? Or did the government conspire from the very beginning to grant immunity to Marines they knew were guilty of murder? Did they purposefully obstruct justice to keep the truth hidden not only from the public, but from their own forensic investigators as well?
0: We knew basically what happened at each of the four sites within 90 days. And we had a very high degree of
2: confidence in that. In the next episode, Special Agent Mike Maloney finds himself at odds, not only with the United States Marine Corps, but also with his superiors inside the NCIS. When we gave
0: our first briefing on the forensic reconstruction and what happened in Haditha, at all four of those scenes, the good, the bad, and the ugly, it became apparent that the prosecution team had a theory of what occurred there. And after our briefing, it was apparent that the forensic evidence did not support their theory.
2: This is a Crowd Network podcast in association with Buccaneer Media and The Dakota Group. The podcast was produced by Steve Jones and edited by Ed Enniott, with additional editing by Ed Bartesky Jr. and R.A. Fetty. Executive producers for Crowd Network are Mike Carr and Mike Pearls and for Buccaneer Media, Tony Wood and Richard Tulkhart Original music by Joel Goodman with additional tracks from BMG Production Music. If you want more Murder in House 2, join us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter where we'll be posting videos of what you've just heard as well as photographs and copies of original investigative documents. Just search for murder in House 2. If you'd like another podcast recommendation, check out a Crowd Network original from England rugby player Joe Marler. He's on a journey to meet the most interesting people he can find. And he's recorded episodes about psychopaths, prison governors, and even zookeepers. It's an eclectic mix with new episodes out every Wednesday. Just search for The Joe Marler Show on your podcast app. I'm Michael Epstein. Thanks for listening.
0: Crowd Network. A place where you belong.
2: Hi, I'm Matt Harris. Seton Tucker and I host the podcast Impact of Influence, which for two years covered in-depth elic murdoch who was eventually convicted in 2023 of murdering his wife maggie and son paul that story continues to evolve and we will cover that plus we will tell you stories of other true crime events that have happened in the south please join us on impact of influence and give us a follow on the impact of influence facebook page
3: And some fun. Listen to Fruit Loop Serial Killers of Color on Spotify, Google Play, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. My name is Bill Huffman, and I am a former Cleveland news producer, and I am now the host of the podcast, Who Killed. I began the show focusing on the unsolved murder of Amy Mahalovic. And now each week I explore a different case with a focus on some of the victims who don't get the attention they deserve. I have a deep catalog of over 225 episodes. So there is a guarantee there will be something for you. Who Killed is an Evergreen podcast, Killer Podcasts, and Slow Burn Media production. Subscribe today, wherever you get your favorite shows.
0: Ohio is a land of mystery. From missing shipwrecks and lost treasure beneath her surface, to strange phenomena slicing through her skies, from myths that have evolved around historic events and people, to the unsolved murders and disappearances that keep her communities wondering, what happened? Find Ohio Mysteries on your favorite podcast app, and let's explore the inexplicable. OhioMysteries.com